Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from New York is Allison Taylor. Allison is Clinical Associate Professor at NYU Stern School of Business and author of the book Higher Ground. Uh, Allison, thanks for joining us. There are a lot of intriguing ideas in your book, and I want to start with one that you talked about, which is in the policies procedures area and how to make compliance programs truly work. You're an advocate of what you've labeled uh, firm foundations. Um, what makes for a firm foundation? That is a great question, and thanks so much for having me. Um, I think there needs to there need to be a few things. I think uh, too many rules will behaviorally uh, have a bad impact. So um, there is a tendency, I think, to emphasize zero tolerance and to put in place rules for every eventuality. And that research shows will tend to have the effect of making employees uh, switch off their own ethical reasoning, switch off their own judgment and sort of say, if there's no rule about it, I don't need to worry about it or to become uh, overwhelmed with all the kind of rules, policies, procedures, where to find them, what um, is applied um, and what isn't. So. I think uh, a few things. Um, one thing is uh, being very, very clear about what your um, firm uh, non-negotiables are, uh, maybe not having too many rules. And then most importantly, paying attention to human behavior, human motivations, incentives, um, and, and how we really do and don't behave. I mean, this is obviously not news, but one of the big reasons uh, such policies and procedures fail is that there's mixed messaging from the core business and from the ethics and compliance team. So uh, I think what everybody needs to focus on is integration uh, uh, between the team and the core business. That's obviously easily, much more easily said than done, but one of the ways it plays out most obviously is in the design of incentives. Yeah, which is always an area of great opportunity and just tremendous risk for organization. Now, when it comes to rules, um, you know, compliance programs typically have a great deal of them. There's punishments and monitoring. And, and you've talked, and I, I don't disagree that sort of zero tolerance policies can be counterproductive because they tend to end up being just death penalty policies over and over again. Um, but there's an interesting thing that you talk about is you think that that actually promotes distrust. Um, why exactly? Well, what tends to happen uh, with these zero tolerance rules is, is and, and what is a big risk in culture in general, right, is the gap between rhetoric and what's actually happening, what employees can see um, and feel. And as we can see over and over again, most recently with uh, what's happening at Boeing, there is a bit of a tendency to, um, suggest or imply or behave as if the senior leadership team um, and possibly the board um, are not subject to the same rules, sanctions and principles as, as everybody else. And if that is happening, if people perceive there is one set of rules that applies for me and there's one set of rules that applies to powerful people, I think that is one of the quickest ways to degrade trust and degrade culture and deg to degrade good faith attempts to, to meet the rules. So um, I think I think that's just kind of one example um, of something that goes on. Um, another example is we spend a lot of time um, telling employees they ought to feel, they ought to speak up, they ought to raise concerns, they ought to call, call the whistleblowing line without examining why employees might uh, be reluctant to do that, why that might require 
um, so much courage in the first place. So I think with both these um, examples, uh, what we need to be careful about is, is power and the realities of power in organizations and making sure that if you're going to put in place rules and sanctions, they apply to everybody consistently. And that can be very, very difficult for a compliance officer, uh, particularly a compliance officer that isn't in the C-suite, that doesn't have a direct reporting line to the board and doesn't have the independence and seniority and credibility to really make sure these things are taking place. So there are many highly effective uh, compliance officers that just struggle because they don't have the ability to drive that senior accountability. So you've already touched a bit about how we can make things better. Any other ideas you want to share to create a better approach? Well, I think the other thing I've mentioned the the seniority and independence, um, you know, budget power and so on of the compliance officer and compliance function. The other thing, as we know, that is is happening, and the SEC has done a lot of work on this, is the rise of what we might call ESG um, or sustainability. That um, has always been a legitimate concern for um, compliance officers, but even more so now because many of these issues are increasingly becoming regulated and are increasingly coming under the purview um, of compliance. And so um, something else I think that needs to happen that I've written about before, um, far before the book, is a more kind of integrated and holistic view of integrity and ethics. And I think, as we both know, many uh, ethics and compliance teams have been heading that way uh, for a while with respect to things like culture and behavior and incentives. But now I think there's a very powerful argument to get a, a more integrated view of governance and to get a very um, firm uh, view and firm level of oversight um, of environmental and social disclosures um, and environmental and social strategy um, from the governance risk and compliance people. So how to integrate that, how to make that effective, how to cut through all this noise, I think is maybe one of the biggest challenges um, currently facing the function. Now, I want to move on to another challenge, which is measuring effectiveness. Part of the problem is the human tendency to measure what we did and, and not what we achieved, because the achievement right. part's a lot harder to get. Part of it with compliance program is that in many cases, success is measured by what didn't happen. There wasn't a data breach. There wasn't a bribe paid. There wasn't a, a something yeah. built to the government falsely. It's not like people come running in the door and say, hey, thank you. I almost committed a felony today. Uh, but I right. didn't. What do you think we should and can be measuring? Uh, so, I mean, there's a um, there's a wonderful article in HBR by Hui Chen about this called Why Your Compliance Program is a Million Dollar Waste of Time that uh, that describes all these problems in detail. But something like training completion rates, you know, is a very good example of, yes, you need to know it. Yes, you need to measure it. But that tells you nothing about the effectiveness of the training. That tells you nothing about whether employees listened or just kind of click through on a dull Zoom call. Tells you nothing about whether employees can... Uh, apply these ideas and nothing about whether the ideas um, are actually working. So uh, there are ways to think about measuring compliance efforts more effectively. But what I, I think needs to be done is, is measuring ethical culture. So that would be uh, things like whether employees feel safe to speak up. If they are speaking up, who are they doing this to? Do they believe the whistleblowing line is anonymous? Uh, do they feel that their leaders are looking out for them? Do they feel um, that the organization is fair and pro-social? So 
there's a tendency, I think, to think of measuring culture as sort of soft and fluffy, whereas measuring training completion rates and violations is hard and serious. And I think there needs to be uh, much more serious work done on measuring culture, the different cultures in different groups, um, and really how employees feel about their jobs, feel about their company, feel about their bosses, because we know that one of the uh, reasons that people uh, commit fraud and corruption and these other um, kind of legal violations is that they feel that the organization is not treating them fairly. Um, they feel that they um, are justified in, in, in behaving in this way. So these are the kind of questions I think we need to dive into in a little bit more detail. So we've talked up to now mostly about you know, compliance specific topics, but what about when it comes to decisions that are more about ethics than strictly compliance? How do we help people make those decisions better? So um, I think there's uh, more of a need um, than we have at the moment to, to really acknowledge that ethics is a collective decision-making process. And one of the reasons people, uh, I think, are reluctant to talk about ethics is the idea that ethics are not consistent. People don't agree on what is the right thing to do or a good thing to do. We're in a heavily polarized uh, election season right now in the US, but there are, you know, if you think about any of the controversial questions that have dominated the headlines over the past few years, there is legitimate disagreement um, about many of these questions. So I think companies are, are reluctant to dive into these questions of ethics uh, for, for very, very good reasons. Um, in my book, I discuss um, decision making and ethics committees in a couple of Dutch banks, ABM, AMRO and, and Rabobank, where there has really been this effort to view this as a collective process, to bring difficult decisions to the table, to consult stakeholders very widely, to consult junior employees and continually kind of explore and understand that these questions um, are dynamic. I also in the book uh, make the case that a, a, an anchor to human rights is one a good way to avoid some of these um, controversies. Uh, what, what I like about human rights um, is they are legally grounded. They're, they're um, you know, historic and legally grounded. There is a lot of consideration of trade-offs, but particularly what I like about human rights frameworks is that they argue that you should not be uh, able to impose your ideology on somebody that doesn't share it. So we allow freedom of expression, freedom of belief, privacy, access to basic rights. And I think given how fraught and difficult the landscape for ethics out there is and is going to continue to be, that is one possible place that businesses can anchor and, and some leading businesses have done this. So many still uh, regard this as a very challenging uh, thing to encourage or thing for me to ask for. Well, but by the same token, you know, the human rights is becoming law when it comes to things like the Uyghur Act the U.S. has preventing a lot of imports from the Xinjiang region. We've seen the German Supply Chain Act, a, a broader EU one is expected. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves, too, and if that ethics issue ends up really becoming a much more of a compliance issue. Well, Allison, Absolutely. thank you. Sorry, the, the, yeah, the sorry. EU regulating uh, human rights is a fascinating development. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the second order consequences are, but it is certainly a good reason to, to take these developments seriously. And it'll be one that's going to be changing dramatically, no doubt, over the next few years. Well, Alison, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. Good luck with your book, Higher Ground. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletow from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.